Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast, where we discuss the implications of the current global economic system's inability to explain or correct the inequitable and often arbitrary distribution of wealth and income. To explain the complexities, we invite some of the world's leading figures in the economic development space to share insights on how to move the needle on unfair economic designs that continue to perpetuate inequality and poverty. From practice and policy to research and scholarship, our guests are among the best in their fields. I'm Fred Olayale, your host. Today, we will look at issues around the environmental, social, and governance domain, ESG, under the specific topic, ESG, capital markets, and impact. Indeed, given the social and economic justice dynamics of the last couple of years, this issue has moved to the front burner of the public policy and corporate strategy debate. The demand for investment opportunities related to climate action and inclusive growth has grown rapidly over the past decade. And ESG investing has become very popular. We, we have a leading expert on the podcast today who will help us make sense of these trends. And my guest on today's episode is a leader and an accomplished litigator with an international reputation for achieving outstanding results for his clients. I have with me today, Roger Barton, the managing partner of Barton LLP in New York. He applies his management expertise and over 30 years of experience to leading a firm that is dedicated to providing its clients with quality and results through a practical and business-minded approach. He has been rated by the American Lawyer, Corporate Counsel Magazine, and the National Law Journal as one of the top commercial litigators in the United States, and has an AV permanent peer review rating in Martindale, the highest rating in the legal profession for professional excellence and ethical standards. He is a fellow of the Litigation Council of America. Welcome, Roger. Thank you, Fred. Good to be here. Okay, so let's uh, unpack this. The demand for investment opportunities related to climate action and inclusive growth has grown rapidly over the past decade. 
Some argue that the urgency of fixing the ills of social inequality and the existential threats of climate change explains this exponential growth in ESG activities. My question to you is very direct. Is that a fair assessment? If yes, if yes, can you expatiate? And if not, what are your thoughts? That's, that's a tough question, but yes, I think I could handle that. Um, I think, you know, we've seen accelerations of, of trends um, in the last two, three years that have been dramatic. You know, you have natural disasters, political unrest. We're seeing that this week in a, in a large fashion. Uh, the social justice movements, you know, Time's Up, Black Lives Matters, Stop Asian Hate and so forth. Uh, and, and COVID, I think, as well, um, has accelerated a lot of trends and, and I think given people time to assess what their priorities are, particularly during COVID when people, you know, were in a lockdown and, and you know, uh, were reevaluating, I think, how they were living their lives up to that point. Um, and it's, it's interesting to notice that ESG investing uh, which is now being tracked pretty significantly by Moody's and others, uh, has shown a sharp rise. In 2020, the amount of ESG investing grew by 140%, which is quite large. Um, a 2021 survey from Investor, Investortopia said that 62% of the investing in ESG had only occurred within the last five years. So this is, it's a new trend, it's an increasing trend, and it's, it's something that you know, the investor community are, are interested in. Um, you know, is it tied to the social inequity and, and threats of climate change, or is it just also a shift, I think, in, in people's values? Um, I think it's generational also. Um, I think if you look at, um, again, studies uh, with Gen Xers and, and millennials versus old folks like me, baby boomers, um, those peer groups believe that ESG investing um, is profitable, that investing in companies that have, a, have an ESG uh, commitment um, can be more profitable than not. So I, I think you have you know, a lot of elements that are pushing this uh, and the government is, is being mindful. You know, we're seeing the UN, which I know you're involved with the international business community, uh, in August of 2021, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change at the UN uh, issued findings that they call a code red for humanity. Um, and they referring to the doomsday clock. Um, most of us know, you know, the Paris Accord in 2015 uh, was geared towards uh, keeping temperatures below the 1.5 Celsius degree increase. Um, and now seems based on the data that's coming out of the UN studies that we're gonna reach that in 2024, I'm sorry, 2040. Um, so, you know, you, we've got a lot of, you know, elements that are coming at us literally uh, in the environment that, that's making ESG important. You've got generational shifts that I think are focusing on it more and more. And I think this is gonna be, you know, a pretty significant uh, trend going forward. It's not going to go away. So I think that's 
in my view, that's what's pushing it. Uh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Very well captured. You know, I, I like the fact that you send the context, you know, by looking at the various uh, dynamics, you know, demographic issues, uh, the millennials and, and what have you, you know. And as you we were talking, you know, I was trying to think about the implications of the different um, ramifications. And to me, it appears that the summary here is that while ESG issues have not been of a primary concern, you know, to investors, I mean, traditionally speaking, you find that the proliferation in uh, technology, you know, the innovations over the last decade, you know, and in particular, also the global uh, backlash against neoliberal economic policies, among other factors, they seem to have increased the focus, you know, on cost, benefit, and other uh, distributional implications of public investment and um, uh, policies. So, but that then logically leads to the next question, which in some way is tied to a recent paper, you know, a recent article that you contributed to readers, you know. And in that paper, you argue that environmentalism is not a hobby for a niche group of tree huggers or whale savers. And I'm quoting this in your exact uh, words. But a corporate responsibility that customers and clients are beginning to expect on a routine basis. And for law firms, you opine that this means the time to start formalizing their own ESG strategies is now, end of quote. So I say to that, fair enough. But as you know, considering the level of inequality and poverty in society, concerns are mounting on how large corporations or what some call uh, the superstar firms should operate or how they should think about this. So as a practitioner in this space, in your opinion, what roles should corporate actors play in ensuring that ESG efforts and outcomes are effective and uh, equitable? Sure. Well, I think, you know, we've seen an increase in, over the last number of years, I wouldn't say last few years, but last decade or so at least, um, where I think corporate social responsibility is really part of the fabric of business. Um, one can, I think, question is that uh, being driven by customers uh, and therefore the market forces of, of whose products may be considered to be uh, more attractive to the consumers uh, and core values are important and so forth. I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic um, that I think drives a lot of, you know, the conversation we'll have today about these issues is the power of the consumer and the power of, of, you know, the buying power and the voice that the consumers have. And I think, you know, now everybody carries around, you know, one of these cell phone devices uh, which takes pictures and you can post to Twitter and you can post to TikTok and Instagram and all of that. And the consumers are now, everyone's a journalist. And 
corporations struggle, I think, um, but have certainly are mindful and, and, and take into account in their actions uh, how to try to keep control of their corporate message. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer necessarily that the corporation can do that because again, if someone has a phone and they wanna send out a tweet, um, all of a sudden that's the corporate image that you're gonna have. You'll have, you know, we've, we've seen videos of people getting dragged off airplanes. We've seen uh, instances of, you know, folks denied service at Starbucks and, you know, different uh, instances of, of social injustice. Um, and it's all of a sudden it's all over the internet, right? So I think corporations, you know, are gonna lead the charge uh, with respect to social change and ESG and, and the value investing that, that we're seeing, uh, but it's, it's consumer driven. There's a lot of consumer sentiment out there that, is, that are driving corporate behavior. Uh, you asked about for law firms, you know, how does that fit in? Um, you know, it's, I think you look at uh, the buzzword these days during COVID was supply chain. Um, I would say, you know, look at buying in, in what's called the value chain. You know, lawyers are part of the value chain. We provide value to our corporate clients. Um, but, you know, though we think we're special, uh, many of those clients think we're just another vendor. So whether they're buying paper from somebody or they're buying, you know, uh, travel uh, services or they're buying accounting services or buying legal services, we're just another vendor. Uh, but the corporations, because they're having these social pressures put on them uh, by their customers, uh, want to make sure that they are sourcing goods and services from providers who align with their values. And that's increasingly in coming into the, the ESG component. So I think if, you know, whether you're a law firm or, or you're a direct to consumer corporation, uh, you're going to be viewed in, in many respects in terms of your ESG behavior. Okay, that's uh, pretty elaborate. Uh, thank you. And I also now want to uh, explore the political economy dimension a little bit further, you know, uh, and in particular, looking at frameworks and standardization, you know, uh, historically, ESG issues have not been of primary concern to investors, like we alluded to earlier on, you know. Uh, but again, the recent rise of uh, populism has been explained likely as the outcome of economic uh, insecurity due to factors like trade, uh, financial crisis, immigration, the digital revolution, and all of that. Again, you alluded to that, you know, through your comment on uh, social media and uh, iPhones and what have you. Yet, you find that the absence of standardized ESG disclosure frameworks makes it very hard for investors and other stakeholders to effectively assess the ESG risk, practices, and impact of public companies what do you make of that um i think that it's evolving you know the sometimes you know you have trends where 
a popular trend will overtake standards and systems that are in place. And, and obviously those standards and systems have to adapt and, and, and sometimes even be created. Um, we are seeing, you know, there are a number of standards that are beginning to be put into place. Um, there is you know, the greenhouse gas protocol, which measures carbon emissions. It doesn't measure social uh, and governance, uh, but that is a, a standard that's out there. Um, I think you know, our, our government has looked at this and the House of Representatives approved in June uh, the Corporate Governance Improvement and Investor Protection Act, uh, which has provisions that if it's enacted would, would, not, would mandate the SEC uh, to develop uh, mandatory climate risk disclosure rules. Um, and the chair of the SEC in, in July of 21, which is just a month after the House uh, bill was, was enacted, uh, was approved, also came out uh, very strongly uh, asking for the SEC uh, staff to study um, and come up with standard disclosures that companies should make um, in the ESG area, particularly environmental. Um, and then we saw, you know, at, at COP26 um, in the fall uh, that there was a creation of the International Sustainability Standards Board uh, that's created to pursue the development of a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability-related disclosure standards. Uh, so I think that, you know, you, we're seeing globally and, and at the, you know, Congress level and at the SEC level, we're beginning to get uh, attention on standards. They're, they're not yet been adopted, but, you know, there's, there's great attention on these standards that, that should be put in place. And, you know, I, I think you, you like in, in any sort of disclosure, particularly SEC, you know, you're trying to, to get away from, um, fraud or misstatements, whether by omission or commission. Uh, so disclosure is important, uh, but I think that, you know, it, it's something where companies even themselves many times don't know it well enough. And you hear terms like greenwashing um, or you hear about the Volkswagen diesel scandal and things, things of that nature. Um, you know, these have gone on and may still be going on. Uh, but now you're going to have, I think, some regulatory overlay that's going to put some bite uh, in, into those activities. Um, it's also interesting, we talk about standards. Um, there is debate within you know, this community uh, whether the standards should apply um, according to separate industries or should it just apply according to all businesses. Uh, because if you think about it, you know, a airline industry is going to have a much different set of standards and or a different use of uh, or, or creation of emissions uh, than a law firm would, or you know, a, an office you know come type of business. So there's a lot of you know push out there to say if you're going to have standards, they should be comparable. Um, one of our clients, very interestingly, is developing and they're targeting it to the ISO standard. Uh, a way to measure the carbon emission that's created in um, the manufacture of each type of product. So for example, if you buy steel from China versus you buy steel from the United States, 
the amount of, of carbon emission um, in the Chinese steel is significantly higher than the amount of carbon emission in manufacturing US steel, uh, but that's not disclosed anywhere. And so a consumer who may be interested in, you know, in their ESG and the E footprint uh, would like to know, should I buy the Chinese steel versus the US steel? What's the cost? What's the carbon cost uh, differential? So you, you're gonna start seeing things like that cropping up, which I think is needed it's interesting. And, and again, I think the market's pushing for it. Uh, awesome, that's uh, again, quite elaborate, you know, and I see you touched on a lot of uh, issues around um, climate change, emissions um, standards and what have you. And interestingly, uh, the IPCC report, I mean, came out just uh, some days ago and the conclusions are quite um, uh, profound and alarming, you know. I know there's a portion there that incremental and marginal changes are no longer acceptable. That, you know, the climate emergency is real and um, stakeholders need to really take it very seriously. But you also did talk about greenwashing, you know, and all of that. Let me uh, tie it a little bit to, again, the social justice element. In the aftermath of the social justice movement of uh, summer 2020, I mean, institutional investors ramped up ESG integration in their investment processes. I know you touched on a lot of this before, so I don't want to spend too much time, but quickly in 30 seconds, do you think that the trend will continue? I can do it in one second, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, you know, again, it's generational, it's driven and or fueled, I should say, by social media, uh, that behavior is becoming increasingly important. So I think it will continue. Okay, that's uh, fair enough. And then let me uh, unpack CSR a little bit more. Let's really, let's, let's delve into CSR itself. And I wanna look at corporate social responsibility from a core economic perspective. You have to pardon me, you're a lawyer, I'm an economist, but I know there's always a, an intersection, you know. Uh, and I want to advance this by bringing in economics Nobel laureate into the conversation. Milton uh, Friedman, you know, in his, in his influential paper of 1970, titled The Social Responsibility of Business is to Increase Its Profit. He argued, and I'm quoting Friedman now, there is one and only one social responsibility of business, and that is to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game, end of quote. But then more than 50 years after the debate on corporate social responsibility and shareholder primacy still rages, 
And in the context of today's ESG paradigm, when you look at the legal ramifications for why Friedman take on shareholder value maximization is often mischaracterized. It's complex, it's non-linear. Again, you're a practitioner in this space of over 30 years. Can you educate us? Can you enlighten us from a practitioner's perspective here? Sure. Um, I guess one thing I would say is the world is not as simple as it was 50 years ago. So, you know, that statement, you know, was right. Yes. I mean, if you're a board member, an officer of a corporation, your fiduciary duty is to the shareholders and Friedman's position was your primary duty to them is to increase the value of, of their investment. Um, that doctrine, if you will, was, was known as share, shareholder capitalism. Uh, 50 years later, it's, it's shifted now and it's, it's shifted to what, you know, it's generally called stakeholder capitalism. All the stakeholders, not just the shareholders. Uh, it was interesting, the New York Times uh, published um, 50, on the 50th year anniversary of Friedman's um, paper, uh, 22 responses by leading economists and business leaders and so forth. And they, they all focused on stakeholder capitalism and, and move away from shareholder capitalism. So, you know, stakeholder capitalism now, it, it, what it says essentially is the company, the board, the, the officers, their, their duties are to all the stakeholders, which includes the shareholders, but it's also, it's the employees, it, it's the customers, and it's the community at large, you know, to be a good, as you say, CSR, corporate social responsibility, to be a good citizen of, of you know, your, your market. So, you know, I think Friedman's, I, I, I can't fault him as, and I don't want to oversimplify what he said, because it wasn't, um, but I think that concept hit a wall in 2008 when the recession hit. Um, it was probably embodied in, in the uh, Michael Douglas, you know, Gordon Gecko, greed is good speech. Uh, but, you know, that's no longer the world. The world now is, is has, has had financial scandals of, you know, Enron and WorldCom, Bertie Madoff and so forth. And we are now focused on a more holistic, uh, corporate social responsibility environment. And, you know, there's something I think it's interesting to look at. There isn't a disconnect between CSR, ESG, and profitability. Um, there are a lot of studies out there that show that companies that, that are at the high end of corporate social responsibility, the high end of ESG compliance, um, are more profitable. Right? And, and more than that, they are less volatile. So when the, when the economy turns, they, they tend not to lose as much money as some others. Uh, I don't know why that is myself. I think you can make an argument that if you have a management and a board that focuses on those issues, it's probably a company that's better run than many others. Uh, but I think that you know the, the greed is good. It's all about the money is no longer the way companies are run or should be run. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And again, uh, your response in a way um, points to the whole notion about the dismal science. As I'm sure you know, you know, some guy, you know, characterized 
uh, economics in the past as the dismal science, you know, and in the profession, I know the world has been rocked by many scandals and crises, you know, over time, you know, uh, the Great Recession and then the more recent one, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a lot of these um, exogenous shocks, you know, there's a way they just bring back the debate on rethinking economic systems, frameworks, context, you know, paradigms, tools, and all of the models, which are heavily, you know, um, ingrained in neoclassical doctrines. So I, I agree completely that 50 years, that's a long time, and the digital revolution and advances in um, various aspects of humanity, you know, it's it's way more complex but i think you 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 did a very good job unpacking many of the components uh now let's look at uh the securities and exchange commission on august 26 of uh, 2020 the securities the securities and exchange commission voted to amend its disclosure requirement on the description of business legal proceedings and risk factors and this takes me back to your article which i read as you know based on your concluding remarks in that article what specific steps should players in the professional scientific and technical services industry take to According to you, I'm quoting your conclusion now, to prepare for a market where sustainability will soon be a requirement as opposed to a philanthropic afterthought. I am interested in your perspective. Sure. Well, I think, look, you go back to, you know, why our company is doing this um, and putting aside the, the social component and social pressure and and being a good corporate citizen if we want to look at you know as you're saying the the sec disclosure requirements which tend to be legal and focus on risk factors right uh, if you look at sec documents you're an economist you read those i read sec documents the sec you, you read the economic studies i read sec documents but you know, SEC documents, are, it's, it's a disclosure document, and most of it is filled with what are the risk factors, right? So the risk factors of, of you know, have to be handled. And I think not having a strong ESG policy leaves you exposed. Um, you know, you're going to be exposed to, to business loss of some form or another, but not having a good policy in place. Uh, if that happens, you can be sure that you're going to have a shareholder lawsuit. Uh, it almost always follows that you'll have a regulatory enforcement action, uh, reputational risk, obviously, the share price will go down. Uh, other companies may choose not to do business with you and you have a supply chain issue. So, you know, not having a strong ESG uh, platform and commitment is, is, is going to be, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. And it's a, my view, it's a board level uh risk i think that it is a breach of fiduciary duty of the board not to focus on the esg components for the reasons i just outlined um, but if you do do it you know the the converse to that is going to be you know a higher credit rating 
better access to capital, uh, preferential director and officer insurance terms. Uh, your, your brand will, will be heightened. You'll have the higher profitability. So I think, you know, there's lots of reasons to focus on this. Um, I think, you know, your question asked specifically, you know, what are the issues that companies should, should focus on? Uh, you know, in the environmental space, you know, it's waste, pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, sustainability, use of energy, water usage, other natural resource usage, biodiversity. Um, and there's ways to put initiatives in place to track that, uh, to set targets. Um, this is a, we could spend another podcast going into carbon offsets um, and all the viability of, of, of some of those things and the, and the challenges and, and frankly, some fraud in, in others. Uh, but, you know, there are carbon offsets. Um, holding even we talked earlier about your supply chain holding your vendors responsible and so forth so there's in the environmental space there's lots to do the social space you know the s of esg um you know it's already you know it's law both at in new york anyway at state the federal level the state level and even at the city level uh to have anti-sexual harassment training um bias and discrimination diversity um, you know, all of, of the workplace environment types of training, uh, it's extremely important. Um, you have to look at employee wellness, philanthropy, consumer engagement, you work, you know, workplace culture, we just, you know, touched on. So there's a lot in the, in the social area and, and the governance, you know, it, I think governance has probably been in place of the three, you know, the longest, um, in a, from a lawyer standpoint, in a more, codified fashion, um, but you know, these, all of your procedures should be in your um, employee handbooks. They should be part of your uh, bylaws. They should be part of your uh, written uh, value statements and missions and core values and so forth. Um, but you need, you know, anti-corruption, anti-bribery, anti-money laundering, um, executive pay is an area of, of governance that's, that's very hot these days um the internal controls to make sure you measure all those things transparency and then you know i would even say diversity and leadership is, is extremely important as a governance factor as well wow um need i say more i think you <laughs> i think i got i got more than i asked for there which is fine but um you pretty much captured uh a lot of issues around the S in ESG. The S of ESG, I think you really unpacked many of the uh, components. But still, I feel that uh, there's a major shift happening within that S component, particularly DEI, which you mentioned already, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But unlike the E and G components, which are more uh verifiable i mean you have data to empirically you know make sense of what is happening for e and uh, g in the case of s again particularly for dei those are issues that are often less tangible it's not always easy to quantify what's happening there in order to get insight 
And I know that we now have big data analytics and what have you, but again, it's not until say the last two years when DI issues again moved to the front burner in light of what uh, we discussed earlier around social justice movements. So I want you to give your perspective, you know, to really help stakeholders to make sense of how to move the needle in light of uh, the lack of empirical uh, evidence in that specific domain. Yeah. Um, you know, as you said, there's big data and you can measure lots of different things. Uh, I think it's important to look at DEI, you know, as you say, let's unpack it um, through the lens of, you know, what is diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, it was, I heard this explained, I think it really illustrates it, you know, diversity is, is higher, is being invited to the dance. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And I think it's important, you know, to look beyond the numbers of, you know, how many diverse employees does a company have? What, what diverse uh, members of, of the management team are there and so forth to look at, you know, how included and how are those folks treated within the company? Uh, do they have leadership positions? Do their other voices heard? Are they heading initiatives? Um, is there a mentorship program uh, to bring up the next generation? I think, you know, those are a little bit less empirical to maybe measure, um, but I think, you know, the, the inclusion piece and the equity piece is, is the part that I think companies struggle with. Um, it's an interesting statistic that, that one of the highest positions of turnover within corporate America is the chief diversity officer. Um, and, you know, there's different theories as to why that may be, but one of them, which I think makes sense, is that senior management doesn't really have a commitment to diversity and doesn't give the chief diversity officer the authority within the organization uh, to make change. So I think, you know, those are things to, to look at. Um, they're hard to measure, I agree. Uh, but that's, I think, where, where, the, where the work needs to be done. Uh, nicely captured, nicely captured. And again, as we say, you know, uh, data is everything, you know. I know the debate on uh, DEI, and all of that, I mean, the debate is unfolding, you know, and it remains to be seen, you know, uh, what happens, say, in the next five to 10 years, when we now have robust data, you know, to really then uh, mix us of the dynamics, you know, in the last uh, couple of years. But as I bring this to a close, um, I want to emphasize again that the corporate sector is very, very focused on advancing corporate and social goals through impact projects that resonate with the broader society. As we have seen in recent times, policymakers, corporate actors, development finance institutions, institutional investors, and other key stakeholders are really doing all they can to tackle the climate crisis heads on and other ills of social inequalities. And what we have seen, again, in recent time is that ESG considerations are no longer side issues. They are front center, you know, of all of these dynamics. So I'm gonna let you uh, give your closing remarks, your perspectives 
and uh, other suggestions on how to really move the needle and build an equitable society that can really uh, provide opportunity for folks who are at the lower end of the of the socioeconomic ladder. Because at the end of the day, for development to be sustainable, you know, it has to be inclusive. So I, I want your closing thought here. Thank you, Fred. I, I think that, you know, we touched on a little bit. It, it's everybody throws initials around, but you know, ESG to me, those three components are, are intertwined. You know, you, you companies need to look at all three of them and they, and they do interrelate, but they also interrelate with the CSR, the corporate social responsibility. And I think that corporations um, are stewards uh, in many respects of our society and have a moral obligation to do good as they do well. Um, and I think that that drives, you know, in many different directions, which it will be, you know, within the company to make sure that your, your DEI program is strong, that, that your other aspects of things are strong, that you're creating an, a next generation of leaders that's going to be diverse and is going to reflect, reflect the general population and also to give people, you know, a chance and a leg up and so forth. Uh, and I think, you know, the same should carry over into the communities in which these these corporations operate. You know, and that that is to support the community through charity, uh, and oftentimes, you know, it's not just writing a check. It's it's what what is it that they can put back into the community based on their skills, the skills of their people, um, their resources, um, besides just financial resources. So it's 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 very important. Um, there's a lot of mentor programs, a lot of entrepreneurship programs for students, a lot of ways that companies can get involved uh, to, to help, you know, fulfill the promise that, that the next generation has. That's, that's my parting comments, Fred. Uh, well, that, uh, that brings it very close, very well summarized. And I would like to really uh, thank you Roger, for taking the time to share very, very useful insights from your management expertise and over 30 years of experience leading uh, Barton. I look forward to reconnecting with you. And I also want to say thanks to our audience for listening to this episode of the Inclusive Economics for Impact podcast. As already discussed, economic growth and social inclusion need not be mutually exclusive. We know that reconciling both is not always easy, but with multi-stakeholders you know, working together to tackle these issues, we can move the needle. Thanks again to Roger Barton, managing partner of Barton LLP in New York. Thanks to the production team for making this episode a reality. I'm Fred Olayele, and I look forward to seeing you all on the next episode. Bye for now. Thank you, Fred.